Before we uh, jump into things this morning, I get uh, once again the privilege of celebrating something with you this morning. On the first Sunday of October, I shared with you some of the challenges we were having financially here at ECC. I invited all of us to pray about our part in that, whether we might need to give more, whether we might need to become more intentional in our giving. Maybe for some of us, we simply need to start giving. I shared with you that unless there were some uh, changes in our stewardship practices here at ECC, that we would be eating into our strategic ministry fund at a rate of about $10,000 a month. This morning, however, I get the joy of telling you that during the month of October, we met and slightly exceeded the necessary amount to cover our operational expenses. And once again, that hasn't happened in several months, so we did it together, and I want to thank you for your part in that. question to ask is, how did we do that? We did it with the power of faithful intentionality. Faithful intentionality. In 2 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul urges his readers to give generously, but not to do so grudgingly. In verse 7, he writes, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There's so much in this one verse alone, but for this month, we're doing this about once a month to talk about some of these things, uh, just to spend a couple of minutes. For this month, I want us to zero in on one phrase. Paul instructs them to give what they have decided in their hearts to give. What they have decided in their hearts to give, that implies a faithful and intentional plan. It implies prayerful prayerful consideration of income, of, of their current and our current giving uh, practices, our reasons for giving, and it implies that we are seeking to listen to the voice of the Spirit. Now, for some of us, that kind of uh, planned faithful intentionality has been our practice for years. Kim and I started that very early on in our marriage. We, we prayed, we looked at our income, we uh, have always aimed at giving at least 10% of our income. For some of us, our giving practices may be more spontaneous, and to be sure, the Spirit of God uses spontaneous giving as well. But my challenge to all of us is to take our cues from the Apostle Paul here Uh, as many of us have apparently already done, at least for the month of October. And that is, if you haven't already done so, spend some time this week asking God to show you what you should be giving, what you should decide in your heart to give as a regular amount in the coming months, and make that decision. Maybe you're already there. If you are, great. Or maybe your practice is simply, you know, what feels right on a Sunday morning. If that is the case, I invite you to step out into a new level of faith and experience of God's faithfulness, a new uh, adventure in listening to God and deciding in your heart a percentage or an amount, and then committing to that decision in the coming months, all the while trusting that God will provide for your needs and trusting that God will meet you in that commitment. Our fiscal year actually ends June 30th. Maybe you can make a commitment to stick to your decided amount through June 30th. If you can't do that, what can you commit to? How many months? Prayerfully decide a period of time and an amount and then follow through with faithful intentionality. Maybe it's a weekly amount, maybe it's a monthly amount. It doesn't really matter. And then at the end, at the end of that period, evaluate. Have you experienced God's goodness during that time? Have you experienced God's provision? Were you able to give cheerfully? Does God want you to continue in this discipline? In the past, ECC has always been a very generous church, especially when it comes to special appeals and projects. This morning, uh, we're asking all of us to to, to, uh, experience a different kind of generosity. We're asking for prayerful, faithful, intentional, or intentionality in your giving. And we're trusting that God will use it to transform us as a congregation and to transform us as individual followers of Jesus. 
Once again, this is always true. I said it last month as well. If giving at this time is not possible for some of us, this is not a guilt trip. This is not manipulation. You need feel none of these things. Simply ask that you keep ECC and our financial needs in your prayers. So with that, let me just offer a brief prayer of thanksgiving. Good and gracious God, we do thank you this day because all good gifts do come from you. I thank you for the good gifts that you have given us in the month of October, Lord, the way you have provided for us, the way you will continue to provide for us. I thank you for all, Lord, in this room and online who have played a part in that, and I pray that you bless them in their generosity. And I pray, God, that you speak to all of us about our part. But above all, Lord, we just give thanks that you have met us in the midst of this, that you always meet us, that you always provide for us, and that we get the joy of celebrating that this morning. We pray that what we do with these gifts, these offerings, and all gifts you give us, Lord, would be pleasing to you, honoring to you, and would bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So once again, the good news that we're following all throughout this fall series is simply this. While we were God's enemies, God loved us and reconciled us to himself in Jesus Christ. While we were God's enemies, God loved us and reconciled us to himself in Jesus Christ. And the clear implication, the clear application is if that is how God treated us when we were God's enemies, how much more should we treat our enemies the same way? The first two words in our passage from Luke 5 tell us we need to see what is happening in context. After this, Luke writes in verse 27 of chapter 5, after this, after what? Go back to the beginning of Luke chapter 5. Jesus calls his first followers, James, John, and Peter. Then he heals a man with leprosy. And then not long after that, just before this morning's passage, Jesus scandalizes the Pharisees when he forgives the sins of a a paralyzed man, a man whose, whose friends have brought him there to be healed. The Pharisees and teachers of the law have fallen right into Jesus' trap, They begin to think to themselves, who is this guy who speaks such blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? To which Jesus may have been thinking, exactly. Verse 22, Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I want you to know that I am in fact God in the flesh and I'm going to prove it to you. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. So not only is Jesus disrupting the false, their false ideas about how God works in the world, but he is he who is the exact representation of God's being then demonstrates God's ways in the world with a live-action object lesson. This is how God actually works in these things, he says. When he is surrounded by sinners, enemies of God, when, when he is surrounded by sinners, God in Christ forgives them and heals them. That's who God is. It would appear that God does the opposite of what the religious types thought he would or should do. In their minds, these sinners should be excluded and shunned. A little over a decade ago, uh, the Barner Institute released a study of what non-Christians in the United States think about evangelicals. And in that study, they found that 87% of non-Christians thought that evangelicals were judgmental, and 85% of them thought we were hypocritical. 
Those findings are a bit dated. My guess is they're worse, not any better. And these are the perceptions that Jesus is seeking to change in this passage and in several other key passages in the, in the Gospels, and particularly in the Gospel of Luke. And in order to do this, Jesus is not afraid to insult their intelligence. So to our passage this morning, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. He's just forgiven and healed a sinner, regardless of whether the guy was actually asking for forgiveness or not, mind you. And now, to make matters worse, he goes out and intentionally calls a tax collector to follow him? Tax collectors, you may remember, were despised by the Jewish people. They were a part of the oppressive system of the invading, occupying Roman army. Worse, they were traitors. Tax collectors were Jewish men who worked for the bad guys. They were Republicans going door-to-door for the Democrats, only worse, or vice versa. Commentator Joel Green says this. He says, quote, Though doubtlessly there were exceptions, toll collectors as a group were despised as snoops, corrupt, the social equivalent of pimps and informants. Nobody liked them. But wait, Jesus is just getting started. He's already added insult to injury, so now he's going to go back and add some more injury to the insult. Verse 29, Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. Notice that Luke says others. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat, with, eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Luke says others, Pharisees say sinners. It's not enough that Jesus forgives and heals sinners. Now he's having dinner with them, and that may seem a little backward to us. Surely it's worse to forgive and heal a sinner than it is to eat with one. But not so in that day and age. In the first century Mediterranean world, to eat with others was to express that you were one with them, that that they were your people, that you agreed with them. And for that reason, people, generally speaking, were very careful about choosing their dinner companions. It's fine to dine with people who are your equals, but anything else, anything other than that, is, is scandalous. Among the people of Israel, just prior to Jesus' day, the world of their captors, the Greco-Roman world, were rather heavy-handed in the impact that they had on Jewish culture and Jewish practices. During that time, many Jews, even some leading and important priests, had sort of compromised on their faith, had compromised on things. They'd compromised their religious and their ritual purity. They'd tainted their identity as God's people. They sacrificed to pagan gods. They took up Greek customs. For the Pharisees, the very people who are upset with Jesus in this passage, the Pharisees, to them, Israel looked too much like the pagan culture and something needed to be done about it. And so they helped launch a movement to regain ritual and religious purity and holiness, true Jewish identity among the people of Israel. They, they wanted Israel to be separate, to be different from the pagan culture. The Pharisees, whose name means separate or to be separate, sought to get ordinary people to live more holy lives, not just the the priests. So rather than insisting that things were holy and pure in the temple alone, they shifted the focus to the home and to the family and to the food that one cooked and served and ate and to the people one invited to the table. All of these things could corrupt them. A table and a home and a family could be corrupted or made 
religiously impure if they ate with the wrong people. This was important for the Pharisees because they truly believed that, this was, uh, that, that all of Israel's future depended on getting this right. This is why they're so upset in Luke 5. But Jesus, of course, upends their plan to fix Israel. He says to them, hey guys, guess who's coming to dinner? To the Pharisees and many others, Jesus takes part in a meal that would have been too offensively inclusive as far as the guest list is concerned. And when they complained about this, verse 31, Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And I wonder, is it going too far to paraphrase Jesus just a bit here? Could it be that Jesus is saying, it is not the friends of God who need to be welcomed at the table. They already know they've been invited and are warmly welcomed. Rather, it is the enemies of God that need to be invited and warmly welcomed. I have come not merely to welcome the righteous or God's friends to God's table and to God's kingdom, but also the sinners, the enemies of God, too. I don't think it's going too far to put it that way. Because I think it's exactly what Jesus is saying and doing here. He's inviting the enemies of God and Israel's enemies to the table. In the much-beloved Psalm 23, King David celebrates God's shepherd-like care for him. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You, God, prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. When David first wrote those words, to have God prepare a table before him in the presence of his enemies was no doubt a celebration of the victory that God had given and would indeed give again. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It's sort of an in-your-face move by God. Because you are with me, God, I will enjoy a feast right in front of the people who are trying to get me, right in front of my enemies. We're going to show them. You're going to prepare a feast right in front of their faces. But Jesus flips this on its head. He turns the tables, pun intended. Now, now, in and through Jesus, who is the radiance of God's glory, who is one with the Father God, in and through Jesus, God has prepared a table in the presence of his own enemies, but now it is a table to which God's enemies are invited. Now it is a table to which God's enemies are invited. It is a table to which our enemies are invited. This table isn't meant to flaunt God's victory or God's superiority. This is a table that creates community, feeds the hungry, and welcomes all who are far off from God. And if that is how God treats his enemies, how ought you and I to treat our enemies. A little bit of a side here. <clears throat> I want to encourage you uh, to check out a children's book. I intended to work it into the sermon. There just wasn't time. So I want to encourage you to, to check out a children's book titled uh, Enemy Pie 
by Derek Munson. It is an entertaining and sweet book about the power of table fellowship. It doesn't come from a Christian perspective, I don't think, but it is nonetheless there. I've actually linked a video of someone reading that book uh, in the Bible app live event, and I encourage you to look at it. It's a good book for both kids and adults. This week in our Love Over Fear series, we're tracking along with Dan White Jr.'s uh, book of the same name, chapter 7, Making Meals for Frenemies. In the first part of that chapter, White gives us an overview of the nature of politics in the United States over the past 40 years or so. And then he proposes, quote, In our highly charged political scene, we are often given two options for change-making. First, seek control of the national affairs through the vehicle of the Republican or Democratic Party. Second, become aloof and care less about what happens in society. Two options. Take control or surrender it all. Neither of these is truly biblical, however. Page later, Dan White laments, Sadly, in the last couple of decades, the hope for many Christians rises and falls on democracy working in their favor. I contend that voting has become an act that we've placed a disproportionate amount of hope in. doesn't mean we aren't to vote. He's very clear about that. You should vote. It means that voting or democracy are not where we place our hope. No, we place our hope in something, someone far greater than that. As Richard Smith, Catholic Archbishop of the Church in Edmonton, Alberta, writes, quote, The Lord's people are trembling at the wrong thing. No man, no candidate, and no political party is worthy of the attention we are giving them when they are viewed in light of the Holy One who will command the sun to rise tomorrow. Where do we put our hope? But neither are we to retreat to the woods and stick our heads in the sand and ignore the pain of the world. Why? Because God has modeled for us a way, a better way, a third way. While we were God's enemies, God loved us. God invited us to the table, and God reconciled us to himself in Jesus Christ. And he calls us to treat our enemies and his enemies with the same love, the same mercy, the same grace, the same forgiveness that we have experienced and received in Jesus Christ. So our response to this good news this morning is that we will come to the table together. We will come as those who are freely loved, freely forgiven, and faithfully led along in our journey of learning to follow and live like Jesus in the world. How fitting that we end up talking about the importance of table fellowship with Jesus, with one another, and with our enemies on the day we come to the table of the Lord and we celebrate communion. We who once were God's enemies have been invited to dine with him, to come to the table, and to be reconciled to him and to one another. How fitting that we see Jesus at table with his enemies on the week when the media and our own hearts are going to do everything they can to cause us to hate our enemies, to mock them, to treat them as if they were not, in fact, made in God's image to treat them as if they are not, in fact, deeply loved by God. In Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22, our biblical story that we've looked at over the last few years, Jesus comes to the church in Laodicea. He confronts her in the lukewarmness of her faith, and Jesus urges them to be earnest and to repent of their lukewarmness. 
And then he says to him the words that are going to serve as our opening words, our invitation to communion this morning. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. The psalmist echoes the invitation in Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. As we prepare for communion this morning, one of the things we do each month is we allow for a time, a few seconds, where we examine ourselves, as the Apostle Paul puts it, to ensure that we do not take part in this holy sacrament in an unworthy manner. What we mean by this is that we invite God's Spirit to show us where we have sinned against God or against others in thought, word, and deed, and what we have done and what we have left undone. So we have a time of confession or silent confession, and then we join together in a corporate prayer of confession. This morning I want us to have a more focused time of examining our hearts, specifically as it relates to our failure, our sin, in refusing to love our enemies. So just to begin to prepare our hearts for this, this time together, just have a few minutes of silence. You close your eyes, bow your head, whatever is most comfortable for you, and just relax. 10 or 15 seconds, and then I will continue. Join with me in a moment of silence. <laughs> 